Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand now for the reading of God's Word. First Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to start from verse 4 and read through verse 12. <clears throat> grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. In coming to him as to to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed your mind to us, that you have have written through the hands of the apostles your inerrant and holy word. Father, I pray as we study it that we would be convicted by it, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would encourage us from this word we would be built up in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So from the beginning of time, God has been making distinctions. Distinctions. In Genesis 1, we read about some of the distinctions he made right from the beginning of time. In verse 4, we are taught that God determined to separate the light from the darkness, two distinct things, light and darkness. That was the first distinction in his creation. And scripture goes on to say that God distinguished between the waters above and the waters below, and between the waters and the dry land, and between the night and the day and the sun and the moon. And then finally, 
He made man male and female. Distinct. Distinct. Should be evident to us and to all that God is a God who makes distinctions. Nowhere is this more evident than in Romans chapter 9, where a fundamental difference is laid out for us by God's determination, by God's discretion, by God's eternal and irrevocable decree. A distinction is made between those who have been shown God's mercy and those who have not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raise you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then God, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And so scripture teaches us that one of the fundamental distinctions that God makes is between those he chooses and those those he showers with his mercy and those he hardens, right? Those that are not chosen. You might ask why why that would be? Why why would God do that? Well, the apostle answers that question in Romans 9, 2, he says, You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use and so God is the potter and he has a right over the clay right he has a right to do with that clay as he pleases so that's one reason God is God that's why there are distinctions being made additionally the reason that scripture makes this point about God's sovereign power is to diminish man, to make man puny, tiny, small, right? God does not share his glory with any other. And if man does something to earn his salvation, well, then God is sharing his glory with a puny creature that he made from the dust of the earth. He doesn't do that. On the contrary, the Apostle Paul teaches us that salvation is by grace and that that means something. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not as a result of works so that no one may boast. So the Apostle Peter in our passage this morning is praising God for making a grand distinction. A fundamental distinction, the distinction that will last eternally. He praises God and also uses this truth to encourage uh, the recipients of this letter who are persecuted, who are beleaguered, right? Who are beaten down for their faith. He's using that truth to encourage these beleaguered Christians. 
And so the apostle is praising God for electing a particular people that will live in this world as his priests, as his nation, as his peculiar possession. And there is unspeakable glory in that truth. The God who could have condemned all of mankind determined to show mercy to some so that those people in whom the Holy Spirit dwells could represent him on earth as his priests. He writes, quoting various passages from the Old Testament, but you are a chosen race. We could go, we could go to many passages in the Old Testament that speak of God's choice of him making of the Israelites his people. Here's an example from Deuteronomy 10. Now, Israel, what does the Lord require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it, Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you, above all peoples as it is this day. But keep in mind that the apostle Peter is not merely speaking of the ethnic Jews when he writes of this chosen race. He's, he's writing to and of the church. Right? Those who in all times and all places have put their trust in Jesus Christ. Those who have circumcised hearts and not merely the circumcised flesh. Those who have been saved in Jesus Christ by faith. But the point, the important point is that they are chosen. Chosen by God. Chosen. They are not those who chose God. They are those chosen by God himself. I mean, that's glorious. That's glorious news for people who are dead in their sins, right? What a glorious distinction that God makes between those he does not choose and those he chooses. He then says that, The people are a royal priesthood, which I began to develop last Sunday. The role of the priests in the Old Testament economy was to help the people approach God. Right? The priests cleansed themselves and they killed sacrificial animals in the place of the sinful people. Once a year, that high priest was, was able to climb the hill to the temple and enter into the Holy of Holies by God's prescribed rules. And ever since that, the, the time of God booting Adam out of the garden, the way to the presence of God has been necessarily very difficult. Right? The unholy cannot enter into the presence of a holy God. All those sacrifices of the Old Testament were merely shadows of that one cataclysmic sacrifice of the Son of God, the unblemished Lamb. And so it's through his work as our high priest that we're able now to happily enter back into the presence of God. He's made it possible. And now as a holy priest that enters the temple in a new and living way, after the veil was torn in two, we 
now live in the presence of God. That's our calling as a holy priesthood. Do you have a proper sense of the glory of that? Do you have a proper sense of the privilege of that? Our lives are to be examples of what it means to live in the benevolent presence of a holy God. That's our priestly function in Christ. Is that what people see of you? Oh, there's, a, there's a priest of the Almighty God. There's a priest of Jesus. Living in the presence of God, not wanting to do anything that would, would disrupt that fellowship. Is that what people see of you, or are you similar to any worldling not acknowledging God and not properly by faith entering into his presence continually when you worship, when you work, when you rise up, when you sit down, when you lie down to go to sleep? The Apostle Peter calls believers those chosen people and that royal priesthood a holy nation. The whole of believers, that church, is properly described as a nation because they acknowledge they have a king. Right? A king, Jesus Christ. It was the confession of the Christians during the early years of the church that Christ is king. Christ is king. That was to say that they would never acknowledge the deity of an emperor. They had their king, and they would not bow the knees to any Roman emperor. That confession that they were citizens of heaven, citizens of a country not of this world, was what led many Christians to lose their lives in this world. The Roman world, though claiming to be pluralistic, was not willing for Christians to be exclusive. Much like our day-to-day, people are happy to let us be Christians if we are willing to combine that faith with the detritus of the world's fashions, right? Happy to have us be Christians if we put a gay pride flag out in front of our church. Happy to have us confess our Christian faith if we are okay with greed and androgyny and effeminacy and transgenderism and and diversity. But as soon as we make exclusive claims that Christ is the only king and his laws are the only laws and the emperors are not anything, well, then we're unfit for the powers of this world, right? Unfit. The invisible church, the chosen people throughout all history form the only lasting nation on the earth. Empires rise and fall, but the kingdom of God endures forever. And so the Apostle Peter, remember these people are being persecuted for their faith. So the Apostle Peter is encouraging these beleaguered Christians to remember their true citizenship. The enduring nation they belong to. Because because they're tempted, just like we are, to base all of their hopes on what is temporal base all of their hopes on what they can touch and feel now. But we know better than that because we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Eternal. 
So you've been chosen by God, you enjoy his presence as a royal priest, and you are a citizen of the only enduring nation. I mean, what more do you want? Is that enough? Well, according to God, that's not quite enough. He's going to give you more. We are a people of God's own possession. People of God's own possession. Remember, the people of God were rescued by God out of their slavery in Egypt. Right? When they came to the foot of Mount Sinai after the armies of Pharaoh had been defeated, we read this. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And when they had set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Clearly, the Apostle Paul has that passage in mind. I mean, Peter has that passage in mind as he's writing um, this to his beloved Christians. But note the tenderness and intimacy of God's bringing his people out of Egypt. He did not merely draw them out and set them free. Right? He drew them to himself, it says. He bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. This is language of covenant, or perhaps more clearly, this is the language of marriage. This is marriage language. God is the husband and the church is his bride. God does not merely set us free. He binds us to himself. Right? And... and He binds himself to us with an oath. He has pledged his troth to us, as the old Cranmer liturgy says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, and that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so we're chosen by God's grace to live in his loving presence in an enduring nation, bonded to him by an eternal covenant love in marriage. That's what you have in Christ. So if you've lost sight of the glory of your faith, remind yourself of those things. God has, by his own initiative, showered you with the richest and most enduring blessings. If you're in Christ, there will never be a time when these truths will not burn deeply into your hearts. right, And give you the greatest comfort that any man could possibly know. In his commentary, Calvin helpfully summarizes, he says, there is further as to these benefits a contrast between us 
and the rest of mankind to be considered. And hence it appears more fully how incomparable is God's goodness towards us, for he sanctifies us who are by nature polluted. He chose us when he could find nothing in us but vileness and filth. He makes his peculiar possession from worthless dregs. He confers the honor of the priesthood on the profane. He brings the vassals of Satan, of sin, and of death to the enjoyment of royal liberty. What an incredible honor he has shown toward his people through, you know, though all of us, though all of us are dead, born dead in our sins. So these indicatives lead to some imperatives. In other words, God, given what God has done, there comes with that certain responses that he expects from us. Obligations, though, is, is not the right word. Right? It makes it seem as if God's commands are burdensome or a chore or something that we don't enjoy doing. Right? That's ridiculous. God's priests should happily engage in behavior that brings their God glory. What priests serve their God half-heartedly? So it's our joy to follow what God has done with appropriate living, with hard living. Right? The apostle writes, So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the calling we have as chosen priests married to God and living in his eternal kingdom is this. Proclaim the excellencies of God. That's it. Proclaim his excellencies. Does this mean just going about being an obnoxiously positive person who always says glory? Well, it doesn't merely mean that. Some of us could start there. Right? Proclaiming the excellencies of God should be the fundamental goal of your homeschooling. Right? Proclaiming the excellencies of God should be the reason you testify at a subcommittee hearing at the state house on a bill that would stop killing God's image bearers. Proclaiming the excellencies of God should be the reason you are the lone person at your work that guards the Lord's day. Right? Proclaiming the excellencies of God should be the reason you wake up in the morning. It should be your bread and butter, your constant joy, your happiest pursuit. Right? It should be the reason you write textbooks and the reason you work as a nurse and the reason you have children and the reason you work for Spartanburg Housing Authority and, and the reason you sell transformers. Right? The reason that you do all that you do. It's all an opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of God. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How do we proclaim his excellencies? Start by just talking about what he has done for you. He's chosen you. You needn't manufacture some standard of righteousness that you lie about keeping. He's chosen you. He's done the work. 
Right? He's made you a priest, so you needn't go along with ungodliness. He's placed you in his kingdom, so you needn't live like this world is your home. It's not. He's married you, therefore you can resist the siren call of all other gods. Right? He's brought you out of terrible darkness, and you now live in his marvelous light. You once were not a people, now you are. You had not received mercy, and now you have. And then the apostle Peter gets more explicit. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So, as guests of this world that properly belong in another world, we are to wage a war against fleshly lusts. Whereas we see worldlings serve their lusts, they pursue them, and they're promoting them, and they're walking toward a cliff of their self-destruction because they're at peace and in love with their unbridled passions, right? The children of God, not so. They're engaged in warfare. They're in battle. They're in agony, battling against their fleshly passions. Notice that the Christian, the Christian's fleshly lusts wage war against him. That's what our passage says. It says that your fleshly lusts wage war against your soul enemy is those fleshly lusts because those fleshly appetites and lusts are seeking, seeking to overcome you. They're seeking to overcome your soul. And therefore, the apostle Peter, a man acquainted with passions of the flesh, right? the man who denied Jesus three times, he says abstain from them. That's what our translation says, abstain from them. The Greek word perhaps has a more strong feel to it than abstain. It means to hold back or to keep at a distance. Keep those fleshly lusts at a distance. Right? Just like any threatening enemy, we should, we should keep our distance, particularly when they are prepared to wage war against us. In warfare, you do not let the enemy come close to you. You seek out the enemy as to keep it at a distance from that which you are seeking to protect. That's a way of minimizing the impact of that enemy. So, too, we are to keep those lusts of the flesh at a distance. If you're feeding those lusts, if you're welcoming them to yourself, well, you're doing the opposite of keeping them at a distance. You're committing treason against your own soul. Right? You're letting the enemies of your own soul, infiltrate your soul. You're empowering the enemy. Your fleshly lusts are not to be loved, nurtured, or even left alone. They're to be kept at a distance. They're to be denounced, hated, shunned, attacked. And so if this is not your orientation toward those things that tempt you, whether it's food or sex or money or respectability or anger or, or coarse jesting, then you're aiding and abetting the enemy of your soul. So let's get that straight. 
Among those who reject the faith, we are to keep our behavior excellent. There's also that, that Peter says. Among those who reject the faith, we're to keep our behavior excellent, whereas unbelievers can use any tactics in life they want, lying, cheating, stealing, because they have no fear of God, that should never be true of Christians. It should never be true of Christians. Above all, Christians fear offending a holy God. He considers God even when he is doing his income taxes, right? Or accepting a new job, or determining if his teenage children will have a cell phone, right? Or opening his mouth to say anything. And his refraining from sin has an evangelistic aspect. Oh, it, it, when we're holy, it will often heap burning coals on the heads of unbelievers, right? But there will be some who will witness your integrity and be attracted to it. They may go from enjoying to antagonizing you to asking you for advice because of your excellent behavior. Right? And before long, they begin to fear God themselves. I, I think the day of visitation spoken, spoken of here is, is not the, the day of judgment, as a note in my Bible puts it, but it's the day of their conversion. It's when the Holy Spirit visits them to change their heart. Right? When God visits those who hadn't believed with faith. So on that day, as Matthew Henry puts it, then many will glorify God and the holy lives of his people will have promoted the happy change. Our lives will promote that happy change of others. Think of that, brothers and sisters. The way you behave has an effect on those around you. As they witness you, your family, your children, your friends, strangers... So keep your behavior excellent, keep your vows even when they hurt, and you will have witnessed to the excellency of Jesus Christ. And so you, dear friends, have been set apart for a purpose. You've been set apart for a purpose. God has showered you with his immense grace, and it's only appropriate, given the fundamental change of your heart, that you should live for him and seek to honor him at all times. It is better, it is, it's time, right, brothers and sisters, it's time we better represented our Father in heaven. It's time we better lived as strangers in this world and citizens of heaven. It's time we stopped grieving the Spirit and started enjoying the Spirit's work in us and through us. Right? It's time. It's time. Put away childish things and put at a distance. Keep at a distance all those things that tempt your flesh. And enjoy God. Amen?